listening to First Church Charlotte. And he said to him, follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them this famous passage, we all celebrate this passage, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go learn. This is the difficult text. This is what I want you to uh, lean, uh, lend your attention to for a little while. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hope in a difficult text. Somebody say, in Jesus' name. Before you're seated, touch your neighbor. Say, Jesus loves you because you're a sinner. And you need love. All right, so let's let's get started here, uh, talking about the Word of the Lord together. It's my honor to preach and teach the Word of the Lord. Sometimes I teach more than I preach. Sometimes I preach more than I teach. Sometimes I mean to preach and I end up teaching. You get the idea. And sometimes I mean to teach and I end up preaching. Uh, I don't even care. I just go with where it goes. And so, uh, but it is a, it is a great honor. It's the highest honor there is for any of us to be able to teach the Word of God. The Word of God is life. Can I have a big amen? The Word of God tells us how to know God. It tells us who God is, and it tells us how to please God with our lives. Can I have another big amen? I don't want to go on if we don't agree on the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord is hope. The Word of the Lord is peace. The Word of the Lord is confidence. The Bible says we are protected by the Word. We are strengthened by the Word. It even says we are washed by the Word. Isn't that amazing? And so, uh, Word of the Lord is the most important thing that happens in our services. I know uh, some people, their favorite thing is when the preacher doesn't get to preach. That is not my favorite thing, as you know. I do not like it when the preacher doesn't get to preach. There's only one time in the Bible where the preacher didn't get to preach because of worship, and that was at the dedication of the new tabernacle, a new temple, I should say, and that was symbolic to show that the law had been silenced or would be silenced. I won't get into that. I'm just saying we love the word of the Lord. We love the word of the Lord. On the day of Pentecost, they were having a drunk party, but as soon as people who needed something showed up, they stopped the whole thing and Peter started preaching. I love the word of the Lord. I hope you do too. If you don't, well, you're really missing out because there is life, hope, and joy in the, in the word of the Lord, and we must apply it to our lives. So when we read these passages, we read the gospels, we read the epistles, we read uh, the old law, the old testament, the old covenant, we read the new testament, the new covenant, uh, we are introduced to the progressive revelation of God to his creation. We cannot know God through the flesh. Uh, We can reason of God and we can feel the weight and the power of the moral law within our hearts. This is why all all civilizations in all histories, whether they're Christian or not, they all have a sense of ethics and they all have a sense of a right way and a wrong way to treat people. This is what Paul's talking about in chapter 1 of Romans when he says even before you knew Christ, you had a witness 
witness of God. He's referring to that moral law within, that sense of right and wrong that any sane person has. Now, if you're crazy, you don't have that. But if you're crazy, you have other problems. So God bless you very much. Um, It is in the word of the Lord where God reveals himself and he describes himself and we get to know who he is. He defines himself and he describes himself and he reveals himself. When we reason of God, we come up with some other idea. The best example of that, in my opinion, uh, really is the Greek philosophers, particularly the idea of Plato and his idea uh, that outside of this world exists exist a, uh, a type of, of perf- perfect world, a, form, uh, a world in form and type. Like in our world, there are chairs, but in this idealized world, there is the perfect chair. If you could find the perfect chair and put it in my office, I would be very, very thankful for that because I need it to hold me upright when I'm studying and I need it to lay back when I want to take a nap. That's how the perfect chair works. Now, that's the result of a mind figuring that there is the realized and then there is the ideal. God does not make us do that. God reveals himself. God defines himself. God describes himself. He does this several times in the scripture. For time's sake, I'm not going to go through them all. I'm going to refer you to the one in the book of Exodus where he defines himself, describes himself, and one of the manners, one of the most important descriptions he makes of himself is to say, when he says that he is merciful. He describes himself as being merciful. This is not a small thing. This is a very large thing. Why? Because without that mercy, there would be no revelation of God to man. Without the mercy of God, there would be no hope for what we think of as a church of people who are striving to know him. Are you guys with me? Y'all going to preach with me a little bit here today? Uh, All you have to do to reassure the preacher and so he doesn't go over an hour is just pick your spot and say, amen, praise the Lord. That's fine preaching. Then you know I'm not going over an hour. But if you don't do that, it could be two hours. (laughs) See, Tina's voting with her, voting with her voice. She's like, my God, that's it. That's the finest preaching I've ever heard in my life. My God, looking at her watch. Uh, normally that's your job. <laughs> but she's got a sweet spirit ever since her son got married. He <laughs> just got, gave her the sweetest spirit. It's a beautiful thing. Anyway, so uh, God's revealing himself. He's showing his mercy among his people. Uh, and we celebrate that. It's fundamental. In fact, uh, David, that great psalmist of the Old Testament, he, he points this out with a psalm where the whole refrain of the psalm is your mercy endures forever. And then he describes scores of conditions, scores of circumstances, scores of what ifs and maybes, and he addresses every one of them by saying, for your mercy endureth forever, for your mercy endureth forever, for your mercy endureth forever. And so in this passage we read, we are shown this, this, this man named Matthew, and you need to understand a, a few things about Matthew to understand uh, what is happening here. Uh, Matthew is a tax collector, as most of you know, we read it. Tax collector was the most hated profession in all the land of Israel. Why? They were an oppressed people. Oppressed by who? By Rome. And Rome would tax them, but they would not use their own people to tax them. They would get the Jews who 
spoke the language, knew the economy, knew where people hid their extra wheat, et cetera, et cetera, to tax them in the stead of Rome. And so for the oppressed people, the worst person in the world was not a Roman. The worst person in the world was a Jew who had taken the side of Rome and was allied in the oppression of God's people with the Roman Empire. That was a publican. In fact, in the, in the religious scheme and system of, of the Jews, they had come up with a special category of people who did not deserve mercy, did not deserve forgiveness, and you were right to completely cut them off. And they were publicans and sinners. They had defined that in a very theological, uh, incorrect way. But they were built around that truth. But here comes the Lord one day, and he walks by the tax office. He walks by, I mean, literally the, the language used in the scripture is this issue of the tax office. He sees a man sitting there, where? At the tax office. And he says to him, you see, God does not look as we look. We look with the things we can perceive. We look at the outward appearance. We're not wrong necessarily in doing that. That's the only thing we can see. And not to look at the outward appearances to say, I'm not, I'm just going to close my eyes. But we should not judge as though what we can see is the whole story. Do you see the difference? And so God doesn't look as the, as the as man looks. He he looks at the whole picture. He sees Matthew. He calls him. Matthew follows him out of that tax office, and he basically gives up his career. You could not be an immediate follower of Jesus and keep your career, so to speak. They all forsook everything and they followed Jesus. God saw some hunger in the heart of Matthew, some 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 passion for the things of God. He gave him the opportunity and. And Matthew begins to follow Jesus. Now, he has, he literally walks out of the tax office and there, he, he doesn't even know anything. Uh, how many of you, the first time you came to church, you knew nothing? You just were like, holy moly, it is loud. You know, you, you didn't know anything about that church. All you knew was, really, can the preacher say stuff like that? Brother Nate says the craziest things. I thought that was illegal. Uh, you know, uh, you, you didn't know. Uh, you, you were totally, your first introduction to church culture. Now, some of you are like me. You grew up in church culture. And so what was um, uh, crazy to other people was normal to you. You're like, yes, I go to church 49 times a week. I mean, it's just what I do. Everyone else is like, you do what? Yeah, 49. It says so in the scripture, thou shalt go. 49 times. That's what my mother told me. So we're going for the 50th time next week. You get the idea. Uh, if you did not have exposure to church culture, uh, the first exposure, particularly if you were an adult, was a little bit weird. Not in a bad weird. Some of it was a cool weird. Some of it was a bad weird. But there was lots of weird. Can I get a witness? Amen. see. Here is Matthew. He's walking along. Is he self-conscious? Absolutely. Why? He just joined a group. He doesn't even know the names of the disciples yet. He's just like, huh, okay, I'm, where do I go? Do I walk right here? You want me to walk like this or like this? Do we do the marriage walk? Or do we do the stride? What do we? I don't know nothing. I'm just going to follow along. His first introduction to church 
culture, if you'll allow me to use that as a metaphor. Here he is walking along. And he follows Jesus, and they go to this house, and there they're going to eat. Now, now see, watch what happens. What happens right after God chooses Matthew as a disciple? It's like a whole door has been opened into a different category of outreach because of Matthew. The Bible says right after that, many publicans and sinners came and gathered at the feet of Jesus. I want you to think about this. These people did not know they were welcome there. But when God called Matthew, they thought to themselves, hey. You mean people like me can come? Holy moly. I hadn't been accepted in church in 4,900 years. Can I go? And they're all calling calling their cousin. Hey, man, you you think we can go over to that group? Well, we can't go to the temple. They'll stone us at the temple. Well, I heard that Jesus chose a tax collector like us to be a disciple. Holy moly. Who would have thunk it? I think we can go. I mean, the worst that can happen is we get recruited, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's go. And you see this moment, it's as though a whole door is opened into a whole group of people that did not know they were welcome. But they are. And they come with joy. They didn't know they were accepted. They didn't know they were, you know, introduced to the cool kids. And so here they come and they, 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 they start sitting and they are reassured every time they look and they see Matthew helping with the crowd. Well, if God chose him, surely he chose me. He, there's room for me. Come on, guys. I want you to see this. The reason why we need all people and all professions represented in the house of faith because every person is a bridge to a whole new world. The reason why you should be a testimony to people who are similar to you, of course, testimony to people who are not similar to you too, but you get the idea. Your interested party is the people who have a lot in common with you. If we have lawyers in the church, guess what? We can win lawyers. That's why some of our smart kids who are flopping around in school and not working hard, you need to work hard. I'm talking to you, young man. You need to work hard and go to law school or go to medical school or do something awesome because we have to reach those people. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? If we are just a church of the of, of landscapers, nothing wrong with that. I have a friend who retired a multimillionaire in, in landscaping business. Uh, if we're only a church of landscapers, guess who we tend to have effect upon? Landscapers. But if we have people from all backgrounds, all of a sudden it's as though someone opened a door. You have a doctor, guess what? It's easier to win other doctors. You see what I'm saying? You have a pharmacist, it's easy to win drug dealers. <laughs> If you're medical, it's easy to win medical people. If you're a business owner, you know other business owners. If you're a contractor, you know other contractors. Your life ought to be such a testimony that when God changes you, everybody in your world is like, I bet there's room for me too. Hallelujah. So that's why you're going to medical school, just so you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is troubling to the, to the to religious crowd, not because they're like bad people. Some of them were bad people, but that's not why it's troubling. 
Um, it's troubling, of course, because uh, they're they're trying to control their world, and it's 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 eminently forgivable. I mean, uh, who 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 wants your kid to go stay at crazy people's house? Nobody. I mean, we we get that. Uh, they they they're misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom of God, though, and they think and and stay with me. They think the kingdom of God is about what they do and how they isolate themselves from people who don't do. You see, and that's 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 their safety zone. Their safety zone is that isolation factor. And um, I just want to say, I there's a, I'm very sympathetic to that. It's it's easy. It's very easy to be afraid of people with messed up lives. I know I am. There's one guy I won't say who it is, but every he comes around every once in a while. Every time he comes around, I wonder if he's a little bit dangerous. And nowadays, as many maniacs as they're running around, he don't come to church, but he comes around and asks for money from time to time. Um, as many maniacs as there is running around in this crazy popularity where the only way you can have meaning in your life is to go hurt people. I mean, it's, you know, it's really easy to be afraid and say, my safety comes through isolation. My safety comes through identifying uh, those of us who do and those of us who don't and let's separate the doers from the donors. Not the donors, the donors. <laughs> That's the path. And so these people, the religious people, they're, they're by our standards, by, by human standards, they're good people. They're zealous. They're people with discipline. They have organized lives. Uh, they, they paid a price not to collaborate with Rome. And uh, let's, let's give them their due. Uh, and then you have Jesus, and he reaches out to a publican for the love of God. I mean, that's actually a literal statement, but I was using it as an example of frustration. And for the love of God, he reaches out to this uh, this this uh, publican, and he ushers him in, and all of a sudden, the doors are thrown open to publicans. Well, everybody hates the publicans. I mean, they would rather you be a public sinner than a publican, and so the public sinner's like, well, man, if this guy's accepting publicans, then there must be room for me, public sinners. We have some notable public sinners in our church. I love you. We're glad you're here. <laughs> We have some great public centers. I mean, I love Adam. He's a, he's a great young man. And um, so uh, maybe there's room for me. You are a testimony door that when you came in the house of God, everybody who knew you or knew your past, not all of it bad, they just knew your category. They knew what you did for a living. They knew the socioeconomic group you grew up in. Some of you grew up with money like Ed. Some of you grew up poor like me. I want you to see. They know you have your influence realm. You have your, you have your career. You have, all of it now becomes a express highway for people to transition from wherever they are into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to sit at his feet. That is the power of testimony and witness. And so Matthew does something. Matthew becomes a door of hope to all of these people. And the, the, the Pharisees are upset about it. And they come to Jesus and they basically say, why would you eat with these sinners, these publicans? And it's very interesting. If you weren't here Wednesday night, we were talking a little bit of uh, in the Bible study about some of the politics of Jesus' time and, and the two great schools of disagreement, the school of Hillel um, and the school of Shammai. And there was a tremendous um, tension between them. The school of Shammai believed that Israel could only remain pure through isolation. Therefore, they voted the 18 edicts, which they, they passed uh, by the, the council by killing 
all the people from the school of Hillel. They literally uh, invite them outside and kill them until there was less of them. And then they pass the 18 edicts. It's known as a day of shame in the history of, 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 of Israel. Uh, this has been right before the birth of Jesus Christ in timelines. So there's this huge issue between the two schools, whether or not you can have any interaction with, with sinners, with, with, with publicans, with Gentiles. Uh, the school of Shammai says it's absolutely a sin. The school of, uh, of Hillel uh, has a much different view. They believe the role of God's people is to go teach the whole world about God and to introduce all the world into the worship of Yahweh. That's what they believe. They literally take the Abrahamic covenant serious that through you shall all the nation of the world be blessed. Shammai says, no, the only way for us to be pure and God's people is to isolate. Therefore, it's a sin for anyone to have any business with a Gentile, any to eat dinner with a Gentile or a sinner. They will question our purity if we have that. And Hillel saying, no, this is our job. This is the religious mess that's going on that Jesus steps into. Now, as I mentioned Wednesday night, Jesus always comes down on the side of the school of Hillel whenever some of these political questions are brought to him. Uh, but in this moment, this is the political tension that Jesus is making this public statement in. In the midst of the publicans and the sinners and here come the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the lawyers. They're all disappointed. You're a shame on the truth, Jesus. You're eating with sinners and publicans. And Matthew is having his first introduction to church people. He's like, I can't be here. Uh, I can't be here. Oh, I can be here. I can't be here. This is Matthew's introduction. Now, Matthew will write a gospel, will not be particularly well accepted by the Jews itself. They like John better. Of course, John came later, and they like Mark better. The Jews himself are not big fans of Matthew because Matthew, as you can imagine, he came from a disgraced background and represented a person of shame. But Matthew does something that no one else does because he came from a place of rejection. He gives us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that no one else can because Matthew comes from a place of rejection. I'm here to tell every one of you here today, if you come from a place of pain, you have a story to tell that no one else can tell. If you come from a place of rejection, your victory will be even the more sweeter and you will have a witness that's even the more powerful because out of that suffering comes your testimony and out of that pain comes your victory. I'm here to tell you today, do not allow the past to destroy the present or your potential. Out of that pain and suffering can come majestic testimony of God. And this, this is what Matthew offers. Matthew comes from a place of pain. He comes from a place of rejection. He's the guy who the first day he's in with the religious people, there's a huge fight over him. Imagine if you joined the church and there was a huge fight. Anyway, anyway. Enough about Kenny. Let's just keep moving right along. Yeah, I'm picking on people today. I'm in the mood. It's the holidays. So what does he give us that's unique? He gives us a genealogy of Jesus unlike any other genealogy. I want you to see this. 
Matthew does. And to understand that, I need to explain something. In this particular time, whenever a man wanted to be seen as great, he hired historians to write his genealogy and to tell his story. And they would make it fantastical. Not fantastic. Fantastical. It's different just because you don't understand doesn't mean it's not different. And they would come up with myths about this man. And so, if you founded a city, they wouldn't say, well, there used to be nothing here. And then somebody came and stayed. They just didn't give up. They didn't leave. They stayed. And then they had kids, and they stayed. And then there was trouble, but they made it through, and they stayed. And so that's how we created the city. No, they will never do that. They will make up a story about two brothers who were suckled by wolves. The sons of demigods. And the reason the city is here is because Romulus and Remulus were titanic, mythic characters. Let me just point something out here. A human baby looks like dinner to a wolf. They're thinking, mmm, veal chops. They are not thinking, ooh, come here, you precious darling. Here, you can have your suckling on me. No, never happened. I hate to break reality upon you. A wolf has never suckled a baby. My apologies to Tarzan. (laughs) If you see Tarzan, tell him I said hello and nice abs. Okay? (laughs) Tell him I'm mad about a (laughs) six-pack. I want a six-pack, and all I've got is a case, a keg. I made up a joke this morning. I told someone, I'm like fine wine. I get better with age. And like a wine battle, I get thicker in the middle. <laughs> That's my impromptu joke for your listening pleasure this morning. A wolf has never suckled a human baby. It goes against nature. So what are we talking about where these mythic characters of old are lied about in order that we'll think they're gods? Well, that's what they did. They hired historians to make the story better than it was so you would look at them and say, oh, man, they are at least a demigod, if not a god himself. Matthew does the exact opposite thing. Matthew goes the other direction. Matthew doesn't make the story better than it is. He makes it worse than it has to be. Oh, you're not following me. Matthew makes the story worse than it has to be. Why? Because Matthew puts women in the story, and not just women, but bad girls. (laughs) Why does this matter? In a Jewish court, a woman could not give testimony. A man could give testimony. I know women is terrible. We're sorry. We're, you're, we're making up for it now by giving you our wallets every day. We're making up for it. But back in the day, it was awful. You were treated terrible. You could not give a witness. And to use a woman in a, a, a genealogy was an insult. And Matthew says, oh, I'm going to tell you about some women. I'm not just telling you about one, a good one. We're going to make them all a little bit, you know, bad girly, if you know what I'm saying. First, let's talk about Tamar. Tamar, mm, it's a story of incest. It's a story of rape. It is a sad, sad story, but we're putting it in the story. Then we're going to tell you a story about Rahab. Rahab lived in the bad part of town, and she had a beautiful light in front of her house. It had a beautiful red glow 
to it. And all the gentlemen of the neighborhood stopped by at late hours. No one understood why, but hey, it was the red light district and that's where Rahab worked. And then there's Ruth. She's not even a Jew. Ruth, not only can she not give testimony because she's a woman, but she's a Moabitess woman. And yeah, yeah, she was adopted into the family by the charity and kindness of Boaz, but we're not really bragging about her. And finally, Bathsheba, oh my word, talk about an exhibitionist. She has a really bad reputation taking random baths in obvious places. Matthew, you are nuts. You do not put the story of women, bad girls, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to believe in him. But Matthew's coming from a different place, like some of you guys. He's coming from a different place. And he learned one thing that has stuck with him from the very first day. It stuck with him from the very first moment. It hit him like a ton of bricks. It hit him so strong, he realized it changed to anything. And when they come to Jesus and say, what are you doing with sinners? Jesus' response is, you don't understand. Sinners are the point. I did not come to soothe righteous people. I did not come to celebrate righteous people. I did not come to celebrate people who are always doing good. I came to find sinners and say, there's hope for you. There's a new life for you. And Matthew's going, I get it. I get it. What Matthew sees that many of us don't see is Jesus didn't just come for sinners. He came from sinners. This is the point of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, they hate tax collectors and publicans. But Jesus makes a special place for them. And when they protest, say with me, when they protest, he offers them a very difficult text to go think about, to ponder upon. What is the text that he offers them? He offers them this text. Go. Somebody say go. And learn. Mm, that's good advice right there, isn't it? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. Okay, now let's just be honest. This sounds rhetorically impressive. Like, woo, can we write a song? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> just send in the money, send in the money. It sounds rhetorically beautiful and acceptable. But what does it mean? Because let's be honest, in the doctrine of redemption, sacrifice is a big deal. Come on, don't rush past this. Don't get all preachy and just want to feel and not think. I want you to think, okay? What do you mean? What do you mean with this business about he desires mercy and not sacrifice? This whole doctrine of redemption, the fundamental foundations of grace are all tied up in sacrifice. Even in the law, sacrifice was a, a process of substitution, a process of sin being covered and us being made clean. What do you mean you don't want 
sacrifice. And of course you say, okay, I'm going to study that. I want to understand what Jesus means by having tax collectors and publicans and sinners here, get, not just sitting at his feet, but joining the party. And he's publicly eating with them, slapping the school of uh, Shammai in the face as if to say the idea that it's a sin to eat with sinners or it's a sin to eat with publicans is absurd and a joke and you're wrong. End of story. You are doing this publicly, Lord. What is, I want to understand, help me understand, you desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is not making sense. So let me think, yes, he is, he's quoting from the Old Testament, okay? So I think that was Hosea. I think that was Hosea who said that. I think it's chapter number six and verse number six, I think, because it's in my notes. And the Lord said, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Okay, what do you mean, God? What, what, what is going on here? And even Samuel said, through, Samuel said, through the promise that was given to King David, hath the Lord, or actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to get to that part of Samuel in just a moment. This is Samuel's words to rebellious Saul. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Oh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of lambs. Okay, maybe that applies because, you know, obedience and sacrifice, but that's not really what Jesus is saying. He's saying mercy and sacrifice. What are you trying to get at? I want to understand. I want to get it. I want to perceive what is going on here. All right. Well, let's look at mercy as an idea and as a concept. Because remember, when God describes himself and he reveals himself, he always says he's merciful. So, thinking about mercy here for a moment, we go to a Hebrew word called hesed. The name of the, the word is hesed. It is a very fundamental theological idea from both Old Testament and New. And in Exodus 34 and 6, where God describes himself, he uses this word hesed. Um, it is also an obligation placed on God's people in Micah 6 and 8, where it is uh, incumbent upon us to uh, do justly and to love mercy, to love hesed, and to walk humbly before our God. The interesting thing about this word is it is a very difficult translation. It is not an easy word to translate. Most of us translate mercy one way. We have one translation. We're not wrong. That is a slice of the pie, but that's not the whole pie. And if you look at this word, to understand the depth and the complexity of the Hebrew word he said you have to look everywhere in the Bible where it's used and when you do that lucky for you I've done the research and can give you the cliff notes version when you do that you see this word he said mercy that's how we translate it can also mean kindness somebody say kindness it can mean faithfulness yes it can mean goodness in other words in the Old Testament you'll read where they say uh, the word they write in the text he said and it's translated as goodness, it's translated as kindness, it's translated as faithfulness, translated, yes, as mercy, it's translated most interestingly as loyalty. Have you ever thought that God's committed to you? All the crazy stuff you've done and you can still feel the presence of the Lord? 
here you are, find yourself like a prodigal son in a pigsty, and you think, even at the servants in my father's house have it better than me. I'm going back, and you head back, and afar off, the father is watching, and he sees you coming, and he throws a party, and he runs to meet you. That's when the father runs. The father runs to meet the prodigal coming back home. Do you understand the principle of the 99? Most of us want to celebrate the 99. Jesus is out looking for the one. And so here you see this, this moment in the scripture. You see this, this, this explanation, so to speak. Over and over, this word mercy or hesed translated as kindness or faithfulness or mercy or goodness or loyalty. Here's my favorite description of the way it's used. Steadfast love. I love that. I love that one. You can find this word used to mean steadfast love. Uh, God is merciful, he says. But when he says it, he's not just meaning, you know, unmerited favor. He's not just meaning, I will forgive. He's not just meaning, hey, here's a get out of jail free card. I'm going to give it to you if you will believe and call and humble yourself. It's much more than a get out of jail free card. Mercy is the goodness of God, the kindness of God. The loyalty of God. Mercy is God's steadfast commitment to you. After some of the crazy stuff we've pulled, he's committed. It's the mercy of God that is beyond counting, that is beyond measure. No one can see this better than Matthew at his first introduction to church people. And they're fighting over whether or not he can be there and people like him can be there. And Jesus says, I want you to go learn this. I want you to think about it. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What in the world are you talking about? There's a difference between mercy and sacrifice. Mercy is what God does for you. Sacrifice is what you do for God. I know I just hit you with a brick and you're having to think about that. It's okay. We are lured by sacrifice to earn our spot. And this is what the religious crowd wants to see in the ministry of Jesus. Look how good we are, Lord. Don't you? Why aren't you eating with us? Look how much we have done. In the New Testament church, there was a big influx of asceticism. Asceticism is where you make yourself holy by doing some discipline, some crazy discipline. You make yourself a, a saint, so to speak, by some crazy discipline. And in the history of the church, there's just tremendous stories, crazy things people did. All kind of vows, vows of silence, vows of poverty, uh, vows of not eating uh, certain things or eating certain things, vows of, of, of scourging yourself where you, uh, I think the technical term is self-flagellation, where you beat yourself with a, with a, uh, a whip of some sort. Uh, in all of this in pursuit of being worthy. You're, you're, you're good. Look how good I am, Lord. I've wore a hair shirt for 37 years. Look how good I am. I've made this sacrifice for you. You have to save me. You owe me. And that's why 
these publicans and sinners make me mad because they don't have a hair shirt on they haven't done anything they have they have lived bad and you've accepted them at your table and God says I want you to think about this I have desired mercy Sacrifice can only be the act of love. It cannot be an earning system whereby we get good enough through our efforts. Else, Christ died in vain, Ephesians chapter number 2. And yet God so loved that he forgave again and again. Matthew sees this, and he puts in the story of Jesus Christ the picture of four embarrassing women. That's what I should have titled this message four embarrassing women. And Matthew said, you've got to see that you can try to pretty the story up, but if you miss the sinners, you don't understand Jesus at all. You can celebrate your Abrahamic covenant. You can celebrate how your dad was the chief architect of the temple. You can celebrate how you have paid tithes on even the smallest amounts. But if in all your talk you miss the sinner, you might as well have totally missed the ministry of Jesus Christ. The reason why we have a church today is not because we've done enough sacrificial things to deserve being here, but it's because the mercy of God has overwhelmed all the error, the sin, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And here we are together in the house of the Lord, made entrance into the kingdom of God because of his mercy. I want you to think about this. And that Matthew sitting there saying, okay, okay, I have desired mercy and not sacrifice. This is what I want to tell every one of you here today. After you're done with a list of all the things you're disappointed in in yourself, tell yourself that God loves you and he wants to start working with you right now. After you've beat yourself up, uh, we love to do that makes our superego feel better about our id to use Freudian language. We beat ourselves up. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm not even going back to church. I'm an embarrassment. Okay, after you have done that, point out this truth to you. It's the truth that Matthew's going to give you, and it's this. God loves people just like you because he is his own description of himself merciful, and he loves to show mercy, and you know what you should do today? You should stop with all the reasons why you shouldn't try, and you should celebrate the mercy of God, and you should say, Lord, if you will accept me, I will give myself to you. I will I will walk with you. I will become your hands and your feet in a community. I will be yours, and you will be mine. God loves to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. I don't ever want to be a church where we don't have every type of person represented in the whole wide world in this house. I don't ever want to be a church where a sinner feels like they're unaccepted in the house. No, 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 no. I read Matthew. I know all about it. <laughs> if you miss the sinner, you miss the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
yes, it's a difficult text, but there's hope in this text. The work of the Lord is not what we do for him, but what he has done for us. It's not sacrifice, but it is mercy. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Let's all stand. I'd like you to step out of the seat you're in. Let's come stand and gather here at the front. We want to take a few moments to pray together, to reflect together, to sing together. Uh, I believe the Lord may have a work for someone here to do, to to be done in someone's heart here today. Uh, There may be someone going through very difficult environment, very difficult circumstances, and you're doubting and questioning, wondering whether or not you even belong, et cetera, et cetera. And you are always talking yourself out of the presence of God. And here you came on uh, first Sunday of December and the preacher's telling you the Lord wants to celebrate you. (laughs) The Lord wants to celebrate you. Why? Hear me today. Why? Why do you think heaven rejoices when a sinner repents? Why do you think that happens? Because repentance is about mercy. That's what God has done. Sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we only celebrate if someone, you know, has a particular breakthrough or a particular miracle. We're just disappointed if they just repent. But in heaven, they have such confidence that the one who began a work in you is able to finish that work, that all they need to see is your repentance. And they're like, walk, walk the mercy of God. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. Would you bow your head all across this church? I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're praying today for every one of these wonderful people. God, I thank you that you have gathered us all together in this church house. I thank you you've you've put our lives together and knit our lives together. Oh, Lord Jesus, I'm praying today that you would in some way break through all the walls of resistance that we hold in our heart. Break through all of the things that keep us from your presence and hinder us from knowing you and walking with you. Lord Jesus, I'm praying that in our life would become a new confidence, a new, a new hope, a new sense of purpose and spiritual joy, Lord God. A new sense that we are yours and you are ours and that we're going to walk with you and we're going to serve you. And everything we're going to do is going to be founded on the love we have for God. Whether it is obligation or whether it is law, it's all built, founded upon love. Lord Jesus, we call upon you today. We humble ourselves to you today. Would you touch us? Would you minister among us? Would you minister among us? I pray, oh God, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lift your voice. Would you do that all across the house? Would you focus your mind? Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, Come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. And Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.